This series that we're in is called Embodied Faith, and we're trying to take James at his word. Which is, uh, I mean, it's almost over. You can, I mean, this baby is obviously the LeBron of babies. <laughs> Just about done. But oh, I mean, it, it becomes a little bit of a nail biter here because the second baby is creeping up. At this point, we're not sure what's going to happen. Which one are you guys rooting for? Who do you got your money on? Close baby, far baby. This baby's going the wrong way. That's not even right. The parents can't touch the babies. Watch the top of your screen. Look at the top of your screen, everybody. Oh my goodness. The greatest upset in the history of baby races. You just witnessed. You thought those lower babies had it. I mean, this is kind of like a classic case of the, the tortoise and the hare, right? Like, hey, I'm out there, I'm gonna make it happen, but turns out slow and steady won the race in this case. James is gonna talk in our text about perseverance. And I, thought, I saw this video, I thought of this text, because you have one baby who never gave up. There was a time when that baby wasn't even on screen, but she kept on crawling and she kept on going. You forgot about her. But she made it, and she ended up being the one to win the race. Whereas the, uh, the front-runner babies, the ones that you guys were, James is a New Testament letter that was written to early uh, Christians, but mostly of whom were Jewish, and they were spread out across the Roman world with just wisdom, tradition, like, like I said, comes from Jesus. But James's big idea is don't just listen to the word, but do what it says. Uh, we're talking about having an embodied Faith. And it's cool when I see you guys visiting with each other and like you're using your bodies to stretch and go, ah, I don't want to sit and listen to this guy for too long. Uh, you're using your bodies to give each other hugs and to, to using your, your voices to check in with each other. This is good. This is part of having an embodied faith. I'm encouraged when I see the ministry of this church happening in this room. And it's cool to know that it happens outside of this room as well. Embodied faith is what we're going to be focusing on. Where if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to the New Testament book of James. It's almost at the very end of the Bible. Hebrews, James, if you got to First and Second Peter, you went too far. But like I said, it's just a little short letter, but full of really, really useful, practical wisdom. You can just put your finger in James 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. But to get us thinking about an embodied faith and this theme that we're going to see in the text that James will present to us this morning, I want to show you guys a video. And I gotta preface this by saying, this is one of those videos that once you see it, you can't unsee it. What you're going to see is something that's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. Not in a scary way, don't worry, like, don't, I'm not trying to make anybody scared, but I do want to say, once you know about this, you can't not know that this is a thing that exists in the world. My guess is that you'll like it, you'll enjoy it, you'll say, thank you, Jacob. You filled a hole in my life that I didn't even know was there. And so that's a big, long preamble. Molly, are you, are you ready? Uh, without further ado, I give you baby races. So this is exactly what it looks like. It's parents lining up their babies and racing them. They even have little numbers on them. This match, uh, you had your money on. You were, you were ready to say, 
For sure those babies will win. One of them turned around and went the wrong way. One of them got to the finish line and then just stopped inexplicably. I don't, I don't know why that they would do that. There's going to be a bit of this image, what James says. Don't give up. Perseverance is a sign of Christian maturity. Let's listen to what James says at the beginning of his letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, this letter sent to the 12 tribes who were scattered among the nations. He says greetings, and then he gets right into some wisdom. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in what they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like the wildflower. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the plant. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. Why are we talking about plants? Well, in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who, what? Let's try that again. Blessed is the one who perseveres, perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, well, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Good stuff. What does it mean to do this and not just hear it? When I go to a text that I know is supposed to be giving me advice and giving me instruction uh, or an exhortation of how a Christian ought to live, I look for the verbs. I look for the Imperative verbs, do this, you should do this, you ought to do this, go ahead and go out and make this happen. There's a lot of talk in these passages, but there's three verbs that kind of give instructions. Two of them are kind of fuzzy. Two of them I would suggest you cannot do immediately just by having someone say, go out and do this. One of them is consider, the first word in verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. James is talking about having a state of mind, like reframe your thinking. When you face a trial and a temptation, our natural inclination is to go, oh, this is the worst. How do I get out of this? And as soon as possible. James says, instead, maybe consider it 
pure joy. Well, how easy is that to do? When your friend is struggling and going through something difficult, when there's a situation that you can't find yourself a way out of, how helpful is it for someone to come along and say, ah, lucky you, you should really consider this a joy because the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance makes you mature and complete and it's good. Maybe we can see that from an outside perspective, but when you're in it, it's not very helpful advice. I think it's true, but it's often not very useful. So the first exhortation, consider it pure joy. There's truth, there's wisdom in that, but maybe it takes time. Maybe it's a matter of arriving at maturity before you can see that in your own trials and temptations. It's a bit of a struggle. Lisa has a, a, a mentor of faith, an older woman that she meets with and prays with, and uh, they were talking about James the other day. And the woman said, ooh, I don't like James. Why not? I can't get past that first part. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of every kind. <laughs> joy? Nope. It's not joyful. A lot of people don't get very far with James. But like I said a couple of weeks ago, a lot of people have told me that James is one of their favorite books of the Bible because it's so practical, because you can take it out and you can live it. You can go and you can do it. One commentator, though, said about the book of James, there's no part in James where he doesn't step on someone's toes. James is one convicting message after another. If we take it out and try to live it, it's going to step on your toes. It's going to rattle your idols. It's easy to get and to sew on a pillow and go like, yes, yes. Be like those apostles in Acts chapter 4 who got thrown in prison for speaking the name of Jesus. And the Jewish authorities were like, we got to quash this, this thing. This Jesus thing has gone too far. Let's put them in prison. Let's beat them. And then let's release them and say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And the description we see of these persecuted Christians is that they're rejoicing and they're celebrating and they're giving thanks because they were able to suffer the way that Jesus suffered because they were privileged enough, maybe is the right way to put it, to suffer for the name of Jesus. We read that and we go, man, I don't know if that's where I'm at. Maybe those guys were on something that I don't have a prescription for. Seems a little crazy. If you know Acts, you know that they were, I mean, they were on the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit of God. They'd witnessed the risen Jesus. They had this faith that was unshakable. And they said, this is the most important thing. And if we get persecuted for it, if we face trials, if we face struggles, we're going to proceed with joy. Again, I'm not saying that's where you need to be. And this is what I'm saying. The three things that James says you ought to do in these verses. Consider it pure joy. That one's maybe more of a vision board, lifelong goal type of thing. I don't know that you can go out and do that today, but it's a good thing to keep in mind. The second thing that James says is the thing that we saw in the baby races. Persevere. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because they're going to receive the crown of life. And that's an easy one. We can say, yeah, we can get behind that. That's good advice. Any self-help seminar could tell you, persevere, don't give up. Don't be such a quitter. Don't be such a defeatist. You haven't put in enough time. You haven't put in enough effort. Just keep on going. Keep on going. 
There's practical wisdom in that. I think it's the kind of wisdom that people of the world, people outside of the church would agree with. Perseverance is a good thing. James is encouraging these specific Jewish Christians in a time that was difficult for them. The trials and temptations that they were facing during this time were kind of specific. If you know the history of the early church, you know that uh, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, there was a famine in Jerusalem. And not just in Jerusalem, but in the whole region, and it stretched all the way down to Egypt. There was just this worldwide uh, ecological crisis, and everybody was dealing with it in the Roman world. It was a famine. And so people, you know, tighten their belts, and the people who have money kind of close up their doors, and the poor are really suffering. This really hit the Jerusalem church hard. If you go to other parts of Acts or the letters of Paul, you know that he like says, hey, we got to take up a collection for the Christians at the mothership, the, the church in Jerusalem where the whole thing started. We got to send money to them because these people are suffering. That's kind of the context in which James writes this letter, which when you know that, you start to realize that's maybe why he talks so much about this dichotomy between rich and poor and like poor people. Don't consider yourselves the ones who are missing out, but he says, you take pride in your high position, even though you're poor. And the rich, well, they're going to rely on their wealth. They're going to wither and die and pass away like the wildflowers in the field. Don't envy them. Don't feel like you need to be like them. And then later on, as we go through James, we'll see more conversations about, like, don't trust in your wealth, rich people. But what seems to have been happening here is that the Christians were tempted to revert back to their old ways before they came to Christ. That's why he talks a lot about quarreling and fighting and slandering. It seems like the Christians were talking smack about the rich people. They weren't trusting in God. They were more saying, ah, you guys are worse than us, or we're better than you, or you should be doing this. And they started behaving like they did before they came to Christ. It's an easy mistake to make. Sometimes we have said no to the ways of the world, or the, as Paul puts it, dying to the old self and putting on the new self in Christ. And then sometimes we find ourselves acting like we used to. Well, that's not, that's not a spirit-filled way of living. That's not how I want to be following Christ. This is maybe some of what they were experiencing during this time. The tension between the rich and poor, the temptation to slander. James says, don't revert back. Persevere in your faith. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't go and then stop like those babies who made it to the finish line. They're right there and then, ah, I'm going to go back to where I was. Keep going. Keep going. Receive the crown of life. James has two progressions in this section that we read. One is the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance leads to mature uh, completeness where you lack nothing. This is the progression he recommends. There's a negative progression I guess you could call it a regression, temptation, when you're tempted to do the old ways, when you're tempted to not treat people the way Jesus called us to do, you're tempted by your desires, that leads to sin, sin leads to death, that is not the way. And once again here, we see that wisdom language that sounds like Proverbs, the way of the wise and the way of the fool, the progression toward life, the regression toward death. So consider it pure joy. That's a hard thing to do. Uh, persevere. That's another one of those like 
Okay, go out and try harder. Well, I've been trying to persevere in this situation. It doesn't seem to be getting any better. Well, keep at it. Keep knocking your head against that brick wall. Maybe that's not the best advice. I think too often in church, preachers like me get up and say, all you got to do is try harder. All you got to do is not give up. And that's where we have to be careful when we study James, because it's a lot of practical wisdom. It, it requires an embodied response. We have to actually have to go out and live it. But if we forget the most important thing, our efforts will be in vain, and we'll only get as far as our little baby bodies can drag us toward the finish line. And the thing that I think is most important in this verse, that I also think is the most practical thing, you could go out and do this right now, you don't need to wait, you don't need to develop it, is the third imperative that James gives in this section. Consider it pure joy, persevere. The third one is ask. Ask. If you lack wisdom, you should ask God. He tells us how we should ask too. You should ask with faith. You should believe and not doubt because a doubting person's like, I don't know, I might hedge my bets, I'm gonna ask God and maybe he'll show up and maybe he won't. He's real kind of, iffy on responding to my prayers in the way that I like. That person is like chaff blown around in the wind, but don't be double-minded. Believe that God is good. And this is why this connects with the passage we heard from Jesus when we sat around the communion table. I lost my place. I'm looking for something specific. Here it is, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. How you ask God kind of determines, kind of demonstrates and reveals what you think God is capable of or what, you, what kind of a father you think God is. If we ask and feel like we're bothering God, we miss his love for us. If we ask, <laughs> we ask with hesitation or if we ask in little prayers, which often we do, it's kind of revealing what we think God is capable of doing. I feel like if you've been in church long enough, you've kind of learned the language of like, you know, we're going to ask but we don't want to just like ask for anything like big. We don't want. We, we're kind of allergic to the health and wealth gospel. I don't know if you're familiar with health and wealth, but there's a whole like industry of preachers who get up and say God wants to bless you. He wants to give you a big house. He wants to give you that raise if you trust him. If you believe in him enough, he will give it to you. And if he doesn't, because your faith isn't strong enough, because you don't believe enough, I really don't like that. I've kind of gone my whole ministry <laughs> going in the other direction. But, now here's the tricky part, they're not wrong about the bigness of God, the ability God has to do way more than we could ever ask or imagine, or this call that Jesus and James and others give us to ask big things from a big God. Not just because he's got a lot of stuff and he could afford to lose it, but because he's a generous, loving father. Who, if a child asks for something they need, if they ask for bread, he's not going to give them a stone. 
If the child asks for, what was the other thing, a fish? I really want to eat. I need protein. Fish. Oh, snake. That's not what God's going to do. He's going to give even more. And so, as with a lot of wisdom teachings, there's like a balance. We're not talking health and wealth and pray harder and ask for bigger things and it's all going to be yours. But maybe if we go too far in the other direction, it stunts our faith and we miss something. I uh, was thinking about wedding this last week. I was talking to Eleanor about this lesson. We were in the kitchen and just chatting, and I said, you know, the image that keeps coming to mind is that of uh, wed- seats at a wedding. Let's say you go to a wedding. You were invited. You don't, it's not a close family member, but you're like, I'll go to this wedding, sure. And you show up, and you're at the venue, and you go into the place where the ceremony is going to take place. You're the first one there because you're an early bird, because you're good at being on time, good for you. And you see 12 chairs. There's six chairs on this side, and there's six chairs on this side. What does that tell you about the wedding? It's small. That's not good or bad, but maybe it's an intimate family only. Maybe you feel a little better about being involved. Whatever. But the number of chairs that are out kind of give you an indication of the size of the event that it's going to be. Now think of a bigger wedding. Same situation. You show up early. You get into the venue, and you go, whoa, 100 chairs on this side, 100 chairs on that side. What does that tell you? be more people. I think in the same way, the way that we ask the frequency, we ask God, the language we use, when we ask God for things we need in our lives, it's kind of like those wedding chairs. We put out six chairs and say, God, I really hope you can do this. I wonder if God's going, what else you got? I could do way more. Don't you believe that I love you? Don't you believe that I care about you? Man, I used to work in an attorney's office when Lisa and I were first married. And one of my main jobs was like editing briefs. Uh, this guy named Steele R. Chadwell, what a great lawyer name. He would do probate law. And he'd write a lot of legal documents. They had to be perfect. So he would uh, read them into a microphone and I would type them up. He didn't like to type. So I typed them, I printed them, I gave them to him, and he marked it all up with red ink and like moved things around. This one's not right. You didn't spell this word right. Let's, let's say it differently. And he handed it back to me. It had all this red pen on it. I went, he said, don't worry. It's not, it's not your fault. Like I changed my mind about things. We just have to go through this process a few times. So he gave it back to me. So I typed it up again and I gave it to him. You know, half hour later, I'd get another one. Have less red ink on it, but still just lines and like corrections and things he wanted to change. We would go through this process, maybe like, four, five, six times for every single brief that I had to write in his office. He was always handing me back these documents with red ink all over them. They, they weren't quite ready. He said, this is, this is okay, but we can do better. I wonder if sometimes we offer our prayers to God and he goes, I bet you could do better. I bet we could do better. Trust that I could do better. Ask, ask in faith. And again, did you hear me say, do better? And did you hear me earlier say, that's not the message? Because if we try to do better on our own, we will not get very far. This baby race video that I showed you at the beginning, it's got two meanings. It's got more than two meanings, I'm sure. But the two that I thought of, you got the persevering baby and you got the give up babies. And on one level, the good advice, you know, the self-help, go and do this, it might make you feel good about it, is like, be like the persevering baby 
Don't be like the give up baby. But we can't stop there. We have to go one level farther because of the gospel, because we are people who have been redeemed by grace, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We throw ourselves in the mercy of Jesus and say, we are yours, not because of anything that we have done. I think the real meaning of the baby race video, and the thing that I want you to hear this morning is all of those babies are loved by their parents. One baby won the race. One baby turned around and went the other way. We all had a good time. We all enjoyed it. Every single one of those babies was scooped up by their parent and loved and put safely into a car seat and taken home for a nap. And they were cleaned and they were cared for and they were loved. The message of the baby race is not, don't give up, try harder, muscle it out. The message of the baby race is children are loved by their parents. We are loved by our Heavenly Father so much. The gospel tells us that God sent his only son to die for us. We believe in that. We'll ask in faith. We'll grow in maturity. And perseverance will be maybe a, a byproduct of that. We'll have this wisdom that sees past our current circumstances, our trials and temptations that tempt us to revert back to the ways that we used to live. We will say, oh, no, I know that I'm loved by my good father in heaven, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to live like it. So what I want you to do in our last couple minutes together, again, I'm going to ask you to turn and talk to the people around you to kind of get going on an embodied way of living this out. I want you to just think about what is one need that you have in your life right now? What is one thing you need? And it's up to you to share a deep need, uh, a ongoing need, or just a simple need. It's, it's totally up to you. But I want you to, Molly, I got a slide for this just to help us uh, know where we're going with this. Just share with the person around you, what is one need that you have right now? And what would it look like to ask God to help you meet that need? Because I know that we're prayerful people. I know that we ask God for the big things. But we should ask God for assistance, for victories, for a thick presence in our lives regarding everything. So I want you to just put this into practice by identifying a need and then sharing with the person you're talking with, what would it look like to ask God to meet that need in your life? And then just take a few minutes and pray about it. Or make a commitment, make a little note on your phone, make a commitment to praying for that person throughout the week. Does that make sense? Sometimes when I explain instructions, I intentionally do it repetitively and slowly because I don't want to put you on the spot. I'm giving you some time to think about what's the need. What does it look like to, to ask God in faith, knowing of his great love for us demonstrated in Jesus Christ? Spend five or ten minutes talking about that, and when you're done, we're dismissed to go out and do it. Ready? Go!